sweethearts. What are you waiting for? Breakfast in bed? It's another glorious day at Fuds on Film. A day at Fuds on Film is like a day on the farm. Every meal's a banquet, every paycheck a fortune, every formation's a parade. I love Fuds on Film. Oh, yeah. Hiya. I can't believe your acting career never took off. <laughs> it's a mystery to this day. <laughs> Welcome to another Fuds and Film podcast. I am Drew Tavendale and joining me today are Scott Morris. Hello. And I am very pleased to be able to say the returning Craig Eastman. You're right. 1979 saw the beginning of what would become an icon of cinema and the long-running series that would capture the imaginations of generations of film goers. And in addition to the birth of all three members of Fuds on Film, 1979 also saw the release of a little film called Alien. Moving between, and often straddling, the horror, science fiction and action genres, the Aliens franchise has seen six main films, two crossover spin-offs with the Predator franchise, numerous books, comics and video games, a boatload of money, and the launch into superstardom of three notable directors. Only Star Trek and Star Wars can rival aliens for most recognisable and emotive extraterrestrial species, and most of those are just humans with pointy ears, humans with wrinkly heads, or tall humans in bear costumes, and not even George Lucas's syntactically crippled diminutive space frog, beloved though he is, has the same pull on our emotions as the sight of that shining, black, elongated skull emerging from the shadows ready to strike. Ah, Idris Elba. (laughs) The series has been marked out by its willingness to take risks on debutante or up-and-coming directors rather than established names, and the fact that, until the most recent entry, each film, while clearly part of the series, had its own particular distinctive look and feel, something which has helped keep the franchise from stagnating, at least too badly. I mentioned the Predator crossovers, and we will be covering those two films, along with the Predator franchise itself, in our next episode, but today we're sticking to the Xenomorphs, and we will be discussing the whole series from Alien up to the recently released Alien Covenant. To that end, I'm going to pass over to Craig, who's going to take us back to where it all began. Express elevator to hell, going down. (laughs) I'd be very surprised if anyone listening to this podcast doesn't know what the skinny is on this one, but commercial ore transporter, the Nostromo, is on its way back from space north Yorkshire, where its automated systems detect a distress signal from somewhere just outside space Huddersfield. Its crew are woken from cryosleep. (laughs) That's where the ore comes from, isn't it? Its crew are woken from cryosleep to the news that they're not going to be coming home anything like as soon as they expected, and thus begin conversations of overtime and the usual union bants. Arriving at the moon from whence the signal arose, said crew are surprised to find a derelict spacecraft that is clearly not of human origin. One crew member, Kane, is somewhat inconvenienced by a parasitic marigold glove that attaches to his fazog, and as we all by now know, famously implants him with an embryonic total dick of an alien <laughs> that announces its presence to much commotion over breakfast. You know the rest because this is the movie that set the duct-crawling, divide-and-conquer, pick-em-off-one-by-one template that every space-based horror movie since has religiously followed, including some or most or all of the Alien sequels. Still a gold standard in said genre, I'd be surprised if either gentleman to my cyber sides here would disagree that Alien remains a bona fide classic and probable best in series to this day, and stands as a quality gauntlet so impossible to surmount that even its own director has tried and failed twice now to beat his personal best. (laughs) For my money, still the best of the Alien movies by a reasonable margin, and a very rare example, I would wager, of the director's cut which finally saw the light of day about, well, I was going to say about a decade ago now, but actually that's probably a complete miscalculation. It's probably longer than that. It's probably closer to about 15 years, I think. Is it? it? 
Because all of those special director's cuts that hadn't already existed were done for the Alien Quadrilogy box set, I think, which was yeah. 2003. That sounds about right. So yeah, so 14, 15 years. What I was going to say, yes, the best example of a director's cut actually being, I would argue, superior to or at least equal of the original and also coming in at a shorter running time, bizarrely. So there you go. Sometimes less is more. But I defer to your judgment on that, lads. Perhaps it's just me. I know the second in the series has its fans, but uh, I would still say this is objectively the best. I don't know. I, I prefer the second. So I would probably advocate for that being best of series. But because they are somewhat different in their genre, mm. it's not a direct comparison. Apples um, and oranges, isn't it? Yeah, well, well, at least apples and something a bit less apple but not quite as orange as an orange. Apples and guns. Yes, that's it, apples and guns. Alien is, is perfect. It's so well-crafted, it's so efficiently made. Yeah, there's, it's one of those films like Jaws that we talked about couple of podcasts ago it's so lean and efficient and there's so little you could take out from it Um, so little that doesn't work if uh, possibly nothing that doesn't work it's just it's incredibly tense and you know it does the thing that good horrors do rare as those are and good thrillers too and monster movies you don't see the monster much it's more (laughs) like what you don't see the noises and the tension build up because Everything is potentially this monster. You hear him through the wall with his television turned up too loud and stuff, but you very rarely see him. <laughs> Sometimes at the curtains. Oh, no, sorry. I'm mistaking him for my neighbour through one side. Sorry. <laughs> that, that, that'll happen. <laughs> I've still not seen that neighbour. It's, it's something I'm going to mention later, actually. But just, the, there's, and again, like Jaws, in fact, there's probably quite a lot of similarity between this film and Jaws. I mean, Jaws being a template, being the earlier film, but there isn't. So much use of music or anything that Star Wars just a couple of years earlier had begun to repopularize. I mean, a very heavy score. In this, there's there's the famous alien theme, but you only hear it in pieces, and most of the time it's just quiet with the sounds of machinery and footsteps. And that is so much more tense. And it's strange that Ridley Scott then had more confidence in doing that than Ridley Scott now. Mm. It's a strange way that his career's gone. He started in the high and gradually he's working his way lower and lower. I don't don't know that I'd say he lacks confidence. I just think he's a victim of not being able to pick a good script, to be honest with you. Possibly. But as to to Alien, though, uh, it's just, it's fantastic. And I think possibly the most effective horror film I've ever seen. Now, for me, that is be considered as damn it with very very faint face <laughs> uh, i just i genuinely love this film it's, it still stands up almost 40 years later and certainly in some ways it's dated because at points we do see the full alien it looks like a man in a big rubbery suit that's partly a budget budgetary constraint that's there's nothing you can do about that and the the thing that always dates old sci-fi movies is the computers because <laughs> apparently what a computer largely consists of is some bulbs Phosphorus green cathode ray screens. Yes, and lots of, a room filled with lots and lots of bulbs for, That's it. for some reason. But beyond that, it's it just hasn't really aged at all, I don't think, because the themes that are in there and the characters are all believable and kind of timeless. There's, you know, human greed and like the avarice of corporations and uh, the fact that humans just like will find a way to fight amongst themselves even when their lives depend on them not doing that. Because, you know, as a species, humans are quite, quite spectacularly dim at times. Indeed. Yeah, I, I agree. This 
film holds up remarkably well for something as old as I am. Indeed, it's aged much better than I have. <laughs> uh, I guess, like you say, the, the computers age it a bit. The, the, the default UI paradigm is not switches and won't, I don't think we'll be going back to them. But the only thing that I think dates it even slightly is that having seen it, what, a dozen times by this point, the shock value of the chest-busting scene uh, is kind of gone. And then you do notice that the little fella that pops out, bless him, not the best, particularly when he scutters across the table. That's not particularly, <laughs> not an effect that's aged quite so well as the rest of the film. But that aside, everything else is absolutely perfect in this. Um, I agree with these kind of comparisons to Jaws. It doesn't seem like it's anything you'd really want to take anything away from or add to. It's just a, a perfect, suspenseful horror film with great performances mm-hmm. and, a, and just an iconic alien design. Um, props to H.R. Geiger for the incredibly creepy design of the alien and, of course, the, the uh, crash ship as well and all, that, all those weird organic hellscapes that he's created inside there really does elevate this substantially above its uh, Um, knockoffs. I don't want to focus too much on the ship because focus on the ship is a real beef I have with later films, as we'll get to. But just that ship itself, it's really good design because it's it's immediately obvious that it's some sort of vessel, Mm. but doesn't look really like anything you've ever seen in any other science fiction Mm. um, film or television series before. It's, it it's clearly fit for purpose. Yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's absolutely unique. Really, kind of, it's obviously alien, but at the same time, you you can see that it is. Uh, you can see what its purpose is. It's some sort yeah. of vessel. It's totally and, utilitarian. Yeah, it's, and the crew the crew are an inconvenient necessity. Yeah, it's a really really good design. It really stands up. As with so many things that came out of Alien, it's absolutely iconic. <laughs> nice. I actually have the, uh, may as well mention it now, but. I've always, I've never been a fan of the design of the alien itself. I'm only saying about it being an iconic design and a, and a classic design, but I've never actually liked it all that much myself. But I find it a little bit awkward and probably born of, you know, the first couple of movies where, yes, it was um, slender people in suits, but there's something there's something about that alien design just in and of itself where I keep expecting it to break out and it, like, tap dance or something. <laughs> it just looks very awkward and spangly. And yeah, I've actually never really liked it all that much, but I I appreciate that I am very much in the minority on that one, and I'm prepared to shut up about it. No, I get where you're coming from. I I have reservations about the body of it, but the head alone, Mm -hmm. the head always worked for me. It's really creepy because, again, it's not like anything you've ever seen. Mm -hmm. So many things in Star Trek or whatever we've seen before are just, yeah, they're humans in various bits of prostheses or makeup and things, whereas that looked very very different from pretty much anything i think i'd seen before and problem is yeah it was just limited by budget and time and either it was made in the fact that at some point it was going to have to move and therefore it was going to be have to be a man in a suit mm. and that restricts the design of it mm. um so it does well, look as, as we'll find out in later entries having having a budget and the time doesn't necessarily <laughs> fix that problem but yes it certainly didn't benefit this, but yeah, um, one has to view it in the context of it being a film from the late 1970s. I do wonder that um, a younger audience might come to this film now and find it disappointing and or stayed by virtue of the fact that it, it is the, the film which set the standards. And I suppose a lot of people I can imagine, younger viewers coming to it now would find it full of genre tropes, which again, it's the victim of having been the one that generated those tropes yeah, a victim of its own success basically indeed indeed um I, uh, but yes um I, I would still like to think that a younger viewer might come to this now and find it to be just as excellent as we clearly do and hopefully 
if their first experience of Alien has been uh, anywhere on the back nine of this series course, that that won't deter too much from their enjoyment of this yeah. because just completely objectively, as a piece of filmmaking, it's um, a, a wonderful piece of craft. And it's good to remember that there was a time when Ridley Scott was pretty good at what he did. I think too, it's something you're saying, and I'm not making a direct comparison because nothing can really compare, but when you say that it okay, sort of gave birth to so many genre tropes and things that so that in a way that you go back to it, it looks unremarkable. Mm. I, for me, it's a bit like Citizen Kane in that respect, in that a lot of the things that when Citizen Kane was released made it remarkable mm. were so copied and so taken up by everybody else that like, that's how you do things now. So that portion of it is lost to a more modern audience, but it's still a, an incredibly well-produced, well-made film. Yes. And that stands the test of time. So while it the, does. the things that it gave rise to, yes, they don't have the impact that they would have done because, well, mm. that's how you make a film about that nowadays, right? And um, but it's still uh, such a well-produced, well-made film. In, in much the same way that I remember there being talk some time ago, you know, after um, Spielberg retrofitted E.T. and Lucas went back and retrofitted Star Wars, there was talk that Spielberg would go back and retrofit the shark effects in Jaws and thought better of it. And and that's, I'm, I'm glad that Ridley Scott hasn't felt the need to go back and do a final cut like he did to, with Blade Runner. The, the changes to which I think, if not necessary, were certainly more complementary and fixed issues, whereas with this, I'm glad he's resisted the temptation, which I suspect he might have had at some point, to go back and redo some of those alien effects. I think it's better just to leave it as it is, because the rest of it is so perfect and so balanced that I think if you meddled with one element of it too much... Yeah, just um, leave it well alone. Yeah. I mean, also, too, it is a document of its time, which is something that George Lucas obviously seemed to forget, despite testifying to Congress in the United States that things like films, because they're a document of the time, should be preserved. It's like, it doesn't count if it's mine and seem to forget that as Ridley Scott in that regard seemed to be restrained. Mm. In other regards, not so much, again, as we will get to, but... <laughs> indeed, indeed. But yes, I certainly can't recommend this highly enough. Yes, indeed. So, if that's a perfect film, how do you follow that? Creating a sequel to a successful film can be very difficult. Creating a sequel better than the first, more difficult yet. And a sequel that is not only better than what came before, but is, while clearly of the same cloth, its own distinctive thing rather than simply a continuation or rehashing? Well, those are rarer than hen's teeth. Yeah, that is what a young filmmaker called James Cameron, hot off of the success of a little cult science fiction film called The Terminator, managed to do in 1986. Cameron, who is also one of the screenwriters, looked at Ridley Scott's original film and thought, yes, yes, all of that, only more. <laughs> As others have similarly observed in the past 30 years, Aliens is one of those few cases in cinema where more is, in fact, more. More aliens, more tunnels, more duct, more threat, and more genres. Ridley Scott successfully spliced horror and sci-fi, Cameron added war and action to the mix, and it worked perfectly. The action in Aliens is set on LV-426, the then-uninhabited planet where Ripley and the crew of the Nostromo encountered the derelict spacecraft, and Kane had his unfortunate encounter with the egg. 57 years of hypersleep later, and Ripley awakens to find that LV-426 is now home to a terraforming colony of engineers and their families. And, wouldn't you just know it, something seems to have gone wrong, and contact with the colony has been lost. After much persuasion, a traumatised Ripley agrees to travel to LV-426 as an advisor, alongside a platoon of colonial marines, to see what is what. What is what, in fact, is that all hell has pretty much broken loose. 
and there is now an army of HR Geiger space beasties crawling over the place. And Ripley, Hicks, Hudson and their squad of ultimate badasses must deal with them in any way that they can. Except, of course, they can't really deal with them. And that's the genius stroke. This is an enemy that can't be beaten. But maybe, just maybe, they can survive long enough to run away. The relentlessness of the xenomorphs keeps the tension and threat incredibly high throughout. Our heroes can never relax, never let their guard down, not even for a moment. And still there is the threat from within. These highly evolved, perfect killing machines are in a way pure. They are not duplicitous or deceitful. And even Ripley, like Ash before her, can find something like admiration for the species. You don't see them each other over for goddamn percentage, she admonishes Burke. Aliens is just so well made and well written. Sigourney Weaver is superb as the strong, smart but reluctant leader Ripley, pragmatically doing what she knows needs to be done. While they are necessarily thin, as there are so many of them, the characters of the Marines are sketched out deftly enough to allow each to seem human and relatable. Crucial first actually care about their fates. A few, Michael Bien's Corporal Hicks and Bill Paxton's Private Hudson most notably, are more roundly drawn, and they are so much more than the one-note jarheads that so many war films are populated with. It is expertly paced too. While neither the characters nor the audience can ever relax, there are peaks and troughs of tension, but the baseline level is gradually cranked up throughout, building to a superb climax. And it's also worth noting that, of all of the films in the franchise, it is the director's cut of Aliens, with its 17 minutes of extra footage, that genuinely benefits from the increased material, stretching out the peril and making the tension almost unbearable, particularly the extra shots of the robot sentry guns. It's an ordeal, and intentionally so. Or pass over to everybody else. Our friend Matt Toller contacted us to say that he thought Aliens may be the greatest action film of all time. Obviously he's wrong, because Die Hard. Well, Bastille Day. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, obviously he's wrong because Die Hard and Bastille Day, Craig, yes. (laughs) But Aliens is certainly up there, and like Alien before, there is little, if anything, that I would want to change about it. I also like Aliens and think that it is good. (laughs) I also like Aliens and think that it is good. I can't really add an awful lot to that. I guess it's another film where age has done very little to diminish it. Um, yeah, there's it the model shot that looks like a model shot, but it still looks better than most CG does. So. It doesn't look like it's 30 years old. I would say that for certain. Not at all, no. And yeah, I think you hit on the crucial point for me, and it's something that even the rest of the Aliens franchise doesn't get quite right, is that although they have a, a fairly large squad of people, you actually care about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty much all of them. They all have some sort of character that you can get behind and you know, worry about them when they're in peril and die, which is something that many films can't do and as I say many of the films we'll go on to talk about can't do so it works on all those levels very tense lots of great action scenes and yes it just works really really well Sigourney Weaver may never have been better I would I, I would not want to pick between this and Alien for my favourite of the whole franchise but it's one of these two so yes you definitely want to see them both well you already know I would I would pick one I think there are there are things about Aliens which I have it's fallen a tiny bit out of favour uh, with me over the years. I think I saw Aliens before I saw Alien, and after the director's cut was uh, originally released of Aliens, I think my passion for it was renewed. But I do I do find fault in it now, and I as I've gotten older, I've kind of reverted back to uh, appreciating the first. I still think the first is a more efficient and better piece of filmmaking craft, but there's no 
denying that James Cameron knows how to handle action. The issue that I have with the film, if I have anything, is probably a pacing one. There's an awful lot of getting there before things start getting decent. But it does afford us some time with the characters, as you point out, Drew, to get to know them and care a little bit more about them when they inevitably get off. So, you know, and that's something that we often complain about in other films. So it seems a bit churlish of me to point it out as a as a flaw here. But I do think I do think that director's cut, which has become the sort of the de facto version of Aliens, is a a little bit too bloated for its own good. Cameron has a tendency to make his films a good half hour longer than they need to be. Or in case of Avatar, good four hours longer than they need to be. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously I, I don't feel like that about Aliens, the director's got No, no. But it's still massively impressive achievement and I will still gladly watch it anytime it's on. And it's still in the top... 10% of films ever made, if not probably the top 5%, but um, I, I don't have a preference for it over the first. But again, you are kind of talking cigarette papers at a certain point, aren't you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just to go back, Scott echoed my points too, about the characterization to it. There's got to be good acting and good direction in there also, because while the characters aren't given much time at the beginning, just in that scene when they wake up from hypersleep, and there's you just get this immediate feeling of camaraderie between the squad that yeah there are some people don't get on so well the little scene between vasquez and hudson you know have you ever been mistaken for a man no have you but that's just it's so well handled that in that simple scene that you get a real feeling for the squad right away and you immediately okay vasquez just doesn't take any crap from this this prat hudson and then you immediately start learning something about them without having to do much there's no exposition there or anything it's simple interaction and in that sort of film, particularly in a genre film like that, to have that sort of ability is very rare. Yes. I mean, some of the characters suffer. I mean, well, like Vasquez and Hudson and Apone get enough time to establish themselves. Yeah, we never really get to know the, how, what beats the heart of Wierzbowski. Yes. Oh, <laughs> the only thing, I, I can never even remember which character Wierzbowski is, other than that mm. it's one of the, for some reason, one of the quotes that always sticks in my head is, Wierzbowski! Uh, <laughs> And, you know, Frost <laughs> Frost is basically a man who is there at some point. But otherwise, <laughs> um, given the huge number of people that are in that, necessarily because they are a, an army platoon, a marine platoon, that they do do a remarkably good job of giving you reasons to care about anybody in that squad at all. You're paying short short shrift to someone there who, um, to this day, this this film is still the only film I know of with a character called Spunkmire. <laughs> I had indeed forgotten about Spunkmire, Craig. <laughs> Let us not forget old Spunkmire. Ah, dear. Aye, very good. Uh, and and still the apex of shooty noises. Yeah, the smart rifle in... Well, both the pulse rifle and the smart gun in Aliens, but that, the sound of that smart gun firing is an incredibly distinctive sound. So yes, for sound design for guns, it can't be it's, beaten. It's cool. <laughs> yeah. Also, it's... While I remember to mention it, you know that I have that particular pet hate of monsters in films roaring, particularly at the screen. Whereas <laughs> Aliens absolutely doesn't have that. It has the alien queen at one point kind of hisses, but it's absolutely valid. <laughs> and it's the antithesis. <laughs> I'm just imagining some alternate universe where we've got a poster quote on the release of Aliens going, the monster doesn't roar at the screen, exclamation mark, Drew Tavendale. <laughs> Five stars. Drew's <laughs> <laughs> famous pet hate of monsters roaring its <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean, though. It is kind of a thing, isn't it? 
Yeah. Um, oh dear. Yes, yes. And aliens, uh, Resolute does not have that. The alien queen at the end hisses, but it's it's not pointless, and it's not just well, I'm going to stand here and hiss and roar for a minute, and then attack you. It's it's a warning <laughs> from an intelligent creature who perceives this threat. And like, yes, that's how you should do it. Not just have a creature roar at the screen for no reason and then attack someone. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Bloody sorry, but <laughs> movie monsters, man, everything's a drama with them, isn't it? <laughs> you know that I am honour bound by myself, obviously, to insert references to either features roaring the screen or Dennis Quaid into every podcast we possibly can. And <laughs> now you've achieved both. <laughs> oh, Godzilla, stop being so melodramatic! Oh my God, I hope this, I hope this next Prometheus sequel's got Dennis Quaid in it, <laughs> just so I can park up near your house. And watch you explode <laughs> as Dennis Quaid roars at the screen for no <laughs> and then attacks someone. <laughs> oh, Drew, dearie me. Oh, my days. Aye, but bona fide classic. Yes. Yes. Um, like you said, Craig, you prefer the first, I prefer the second. Scott's probably couldn't choose between them, but it's not like you're choosing. Um, not a, it's not a bad situation to be yes, in. Yes. Um, it's like. <laughs> Which of these incredibly good things do I prefer? Hmm. If that was Sophie's choice, wouldn't be so dramatic, would it? <laughs> would would Streep have won the Oscar if it was just her <laughs> holding a copy of Alien in one hand, a copy of Aliens in the other, and going, hmm. <laughs> I can't possibly have find time in my life to watch both. <laughs> Damn those Nazis for making me decide. <laughs> Bloody space Nazis. The worst kind of Nazi. Yeah. Okay, so we have covered Alien and Aliens, and now we're going to move on to Aliens. Ali- oh, aliens is his colon rumour control. Yes. Or, or <laughs> Alien 3, as they rather disappointingly called it. Well, actually, in yes. fact, Alien, alien cubed, cubed, as the posters would suggest. Yes. It seems like only a scant few months ago since we last spoke about Fincher's instalment in the franchise, because, well, it was yes. our David Fincher episode, predictably enough. However, future generations would never forgive us were we to simply point you in that direction and skip daintily on to the next film. So, as a compromise position, let's go over the basics here and recommend the Fincher episode for the full lowdown. It's a good episode, you'll enjoy it. They're all good episodes. You'll enjoy them all. (laughs) Ripley crashes down to the near-deserted prison planet of Fury 161 as the only survivor of the Sulaco, a casual sweep of the pen killing Hicks, Newton, Bishop off-camera. Well, not the sole survivor, as it turns out, as a facehugger hugs the face of an inmate's dog, eventually bringing forth a dog-type xenomorph to rampage through the prison population. An unarmed prison population at that, meaning that not only must Ripley face down an alien armed with that sharp stick that Hudson joked about in Aliens, (laughs) but there's a good chance that she'll have to fend off the humans too. They've all sworn vows of celibacy under the leadership of Charles S. Dutton's Dylan, but these will be stressful, trying, and, as evidenced by the other films, fatal times for everyone. The skeleton custodial staff of authoritarian tea salesman Andrews, Brian Glover, Dunt's second-in-command Aaron, Ralph Brown, and ex-junkie medical offer Clemens, Charles Dance, aren't going to be a huge amount of help either once the inmate hits the fans. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you clever, clever clogs. Do you say what is it there? Oh, do, oh, do say. <laughs> if there's not enough of a clock put on this by the loose alien, a few more appears once Ripley discovers that she's also hosting one of them their critters in her chest, and that the Whale and Yutani boys are on course for a rescue mission, which is not the most reassuring news in the world. So, Ripley and the survivors hatch a desperate plan to kill the beast, while Ripley ponders killing herself rather than hand herself over to the bioweapons boys. 
there's a podcast by itself in the chaos of the wildly different scripts knocking around pre-production and indeed the folly of starting to shoot this without a script. But in short, it's frankly incredible that anything at all watchable came from this birthing process and I'd go out on an increasingly shored up limb to say that Alien 3 is actually pretty good. With Fincher's career blossoming after this, it's easy to see that the visual style he carried on through with in particular 7, and that elevates a lot of the arguably slender material that they've essentially improvised. It was, perhaps, a few years ahead of its time, and now we've all made our peace with the dark and edgy aesthetic, it's easier to see the positives in Alien 3, particularly the great central turns and the visual distinctiveness of the setting. Now I think we've all re-evaluated Alien 3 over the years, and mm-hmm. I now rather like it, although I didn't as a young lad, and I don't think this is now a particularly controversial viewpoint. But if you haven't felt the need to revisit this since the 90s, I again urge you to do so. I also stand by my comment that the theatrical cut is better than the longer assembly cut, which I find to entirely ruin the pacing of the film without adding all that much of interest. Uh, yes, uh, not anything like the level of the previous two films, but still quite interesting and well worth watching. Yeah, it's. I mean, not that the, the Alien films have ever in any way been happy-go-lucky, but I actually genuinely appreciate the absolute bleakness of Alien 3. Mm. Again, like you and we talked about in the David Fincher episode, I initially did not care for this film much at all. Having revisited it on a few occasions now, I think that time and distance have done a lot for it. It's actually a really rather good film, and you can see the seeds of where David Fincher was going to go. Though it's kind of mm. sad that he himself disowned this, basically. Feels a little bit cheap to have killed the other survivors of the Sulaco off screen, yes. basically in the intro to Very the film. Much. But at the same time, it's it really drives the story and drives Ripley because yes, it's bleak because she's now got nothing left to live for. She spent all of Aliens trying to rescue this child, and then nothing. And so this character feels quite different through Alien Three, and it makes this gives the um, Sivgoni Weaver something interesting to do. Aliens obviously is a better film, but I would argue that her performance in Alien 3 is better. It's certainly just as good, even if the film surrounding it isn't. Yeah. Because she's got she's got this sort of bleak despair to go through. And then she finally finds a purpose at the end when she realizes that she is the alien queen and, and then she's suddenly got drive again. So yes, that's I think really, really appealing. It's of a slightly darker take on an already fairly dark franchise. Yeah. And yes, I did watch, at your request, Scott, the director's cut, sorry, the assembly cut, which is effectively the director's cut, which mm-hmm. is 37 minutes longer. And, Fair chunk, yeah. And what it does is, it makes the film longer. That's basically <laughs> it that. all it does. <laughs> I mean, I have seen people talk about that it explains what happened to Golic, but I largely didn't care what happened to Golic because he was more or less an interchangeable oh. minor character. <laughs> Didn't he pop the ring on his finger and then we all know what happened after that? <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to ignore Craig's terrible jokes. <laughs> but yeah, um, Paul McGann's Golic, he was like, uh, suggests like you kind of forget, you don't really realise what happened to him. I don't care most of the... the uh... I don't care because he's Paul McGann. <laughs> <laughs> most of the prisoners just get eaten, so it's like... Uh, Harsh but accurate. <laughs> Presumably he went down the pub with his brothers and made a sitcom. I don't know. <laughs> I don't need um, more than half an hour of bad CGI extra bits at the start of the film that add nothing and attempt to capture the alien in a toxic waste tank. None of that adds anything to the film at all. It just makes it less efficient. (laughs) Just time. There's like 
a couple of scenes, largely because it's got that I appreciate, largely because there's more Charles Dance in it. Mm-hmm. That was really about it. The rest of it, I don't know. There's about five minutes of footage I liked in there. The rest of it, uh, I, I just felt got in the way of the pacing. Of the rest of the film, yeah. that's all. So, as you know from our previous discussion on these things, anyway, um, I have, I suppose, I'm unique here in having been very fond of Alien Three from the start. Yeah. Uh, I don't say that in order to market myself as some sort of prophet. Or uh, to to <laughs> wave my finger and say I told you so and claim that I was in at ground level because the truth of the matter is back then uh, I wouldn't have had the critical faculties to explain to you why I really liked Alien <laughs> Three but I think you're right Scott I think when you mention the fact that we've made our peace with the down and dirty aesthetic which I think probably got mainstreamed by Fincher himself in Seven yeah that's probably the that was probably the top of the the slope now that we're at peace with that I think perhaps you're right. The remainder of the movie, that veil having been listed, uh, lifted, uh, there's much more probably for people to enjoy now, whereas before they may have been somewhat biased because of that aesthetic and the sort of the very oppressive atmosphere that this film presents yeah. in a series of films, which is all about people just basically being eaten by aliens. This manages to be by some order of magnitude, the most downbeat and dystopian of those downbeat and dystopian movies. And I would also agree with Drew that this is clearly Weaver's best performance out of the four movies that she was in by a, by a comfortable, mm-hmm. well not by a comfortable margin because I think in Alien she was very very focused and very uh, you know a, a very rewarding performance there but I do think this is probably the best by a margin of her performances in the yeah. Alien movies and I have not subjected myself to the assembly cut which I know you had requested I did. Um, I was far far more busy doing useful things with those extra 30-odd minutes, Scott, like <laughs> banking them and using them to go and see Alien Covenant. <laughs> oh, well. Win <laughs> some, lose some. You lost. <laughs> Take my money, Ladbrokes. Yes, I think there's a lot to be appreciated here for my further adventures in the Alien 3 novelisation to your previous <laughs> podcast, but that's how that's how into it I was. I think it was the first novelisation of a movie that I read. Not the first source novel, first novelisation of a movie mm. that I ever felt compelled to read because I was kind of that into the film. And I, I don't know exactly what it was that touched a nerve or um, or got me on side so far back in time then. But I'm pleased that now people are, are viewing it a little bit more favourably. And while I don't yeah. know anyone, myself included, who would say that this is anything other than the third best entry in the series at best, given the lambasting it got upon its release and the negative critical reception, it is just very rewarding to have people admit that this is probably the third best movie in the franchise. That feels like a bit of a victory <laughs> for this movie. And yeah. it is a shame that Fincher has essentially disowned it because I think while it is by no means close to his best work, I don't even necessarily think it's his worst. No. Yeah, and there's a lot to be there's a lot to be said uh, for the act of watching this movie, watching him hone his craft a bit, working around studio interference as he was. I would love for the elements to have existed here and for there to have been the interest from Fincher and the agreement with the studio for him to come back and actually finish the movie he wanted to make. Yeah. But as you say, perhaps maybe not as much merit in that as we would expect if the assembly cut is the closest representation to what he'd envisaged and it is that disappointing. I'll uh, I'll take your word for it. I will get around to watching it at some point, but yeah, don't hold your breath for my opinion. A really interesting movie and rewarding on a surprising number of levels. Yes. And as I say, there's an awful lot of things you could go into about the pre-production of that, and it's really interesting actually go and read through that storied history and then watch mm. this film 
I mean, really, it is remarkable that anything got on screen at all. And yet, something that actually holds up reasonably well is almost miraculous in film, film terms. The only comparable thing I can think of recently might be the uh, Quantum of Solace mm-hmm. when it got when it was going on in the, the middle of the writer's strike and was essentially improvised by Sam Raimi and uh, sorry, Sam Mendes. That would be a different film. <laughs> Sam Mendes and Daniel Craig and wound up being okay. Surprisingly decent outing. And that's probably the closest contemporary I can think of of something starting when it probably shouldn't have been started but somehow managing to pull it out anyway. Mm. Yeah, bizarrely enough, um, considering that I've waved a banner at certain points for this movie, I haven't actually gone that deep into the... Um researching the the brouhaha surrounding it but it always fascinates me when i hear that movie starting without a script start filming without a script. how do you do that i yeah. don't understand <laughs> surely for the first three days of shooting in inverted commas it's just people rolling cameras while everyone stands around staring blankly at each other and shrugging their shoulders well you go first no yes. you go first <laughs> what scene is this again i don't know we haven't read anything what's what's my motivation uh ham <laughs> <laughs> Ham! Ham! Ham is a motivation word for Ponyo. It did, actually. There you go. Oh my god. Are you saying Ponyo is actually a sequel to Alien 3? Yes. Yes, we are. <laughs> it's the movie that Alien Resurrection should have been. And look at what we've just done. <laughs> <laughs> Steamlessly. <laughs> by way of Ham. <laughs> <laughs> Drew, you're a genius. You set them up, I'll knock them in. <laughs> I suppose we better talk about Alien Resurrection then. Full disclosure, I've not prepared any notes on this, so expect a brief intro. Given the interest uh, from the military and the Whalen yutani Corporation in weaponizing the alien from the previous movies, it's a bit of a surprise perhaps that it's taken something in the order of 200 years for them to decide that what might be a good idea would be to clone Ripley from Alien 3. <laughs> <laughs> That's the conversation the scientists had. We're going to clone Ripley from Alien 3. <laughs> Somehow. Somehow with an alien. the fact yeah. she burnt up in a furnace. Yes. Okay. And one wouldn't necessarily expect it to be necessary to clone her and the alien. Surely if they have the tech, they would just clone the alien because it's not that they're sharing DNA. However, they do end up sharing DNA because the resurrected uh, Ripley has had alien queen DNA spliced with her. So uh, presenting all sorts of interesting character dichotomies and yes, I can't remember where I was going with that anyway. This film has Dan Hadea gurning in it quite a lot <laughs> in the first 15 minutes. Oh, doesn't it just? <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much all you need to know. No, uh, when a movie invokes space pirates, it's probably safe to say it's the top of a very slippery slope and Alien Resurrection is no exception to that rule. Directed in... A bizarrely art house style in places by critical <laughs> darling Jean-Pierre Junot, who one can only imagine why he was ever first approached about an alien movie and why he ever accepted. Um, but there you go. Uh, alien Resurrection is a bizarre mix of canon mythology and French art house cinema making, which um, doesn't sit all that well or didn't sit all that well then. And having watched it again about 12 months ago, I think still doesn't sit all that well now and as by some margin I would argue the I know some would probably say there are weaker entries to follow but for me personally the weakest entry in the series and um, that's about all she wrote but yes perhaps one of you gentlemen wants to elaborate a bit more since well, I haven't yes, prepared. But, well because I, I have a little preparation which surprised me I'm just 
when I was watching this again last week, I felt compelled to write something because I was rather surprised by my reaction to it. Now, while I always thought that Alien 3 was hugely underrated, oh, always in as much as always after the first time, <laughs> so your strange use of the word always, I surely would remedy that. Alien Resurrection got a horrendously bad rap, uh, most particularly for me. I mean, it's become something of a running joke in whenever anybody ever talks about the Alien films to talk about how bad Alien Resurrection was. Now, perhaps it's a juxtaposition thing, because I rewatched it for, I think, the first time since it was released, uh, first time since I saw it in cinema. I rewatched it on the same day that I rewatched Prometheus, and it's nowhere near as bad as I recall finding it on initial viewing. There are elements of an interesting film in there. Ripley has been the hero of the previous films, and now you have her finally beaten by the corporations that she was continually battling against. Because realised Whale and Yutani were her big enemy, not the alien mm. in the end. And they no longer exist in this universe now, do they? Yes, they um, fell foul of being on the wrong side of a war or mm. something like that, I think. But there's some other corporation. United Systems Militaries, the people Dan Dyer works for, isn't it? But yeah, so just when you thought she'd conquered these corporations forever after her sacrifice at the end of Alien Sorry, 3. sorry, Drew. I've just done a massive, massive double take at the castle stairs because I could have sworn you said Danny Dyer. And I'm just <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, Danny Dyer was in this? What? What? And then, sorry, the penny has just dropped that you, that you actually said Danny Dyer. <laughs> if that's the first time that mistake's been making, I'll be been making. <laughs> a grave mistake was making... Um, <laughs> if that's the first time that mistake has been made, I'll be surprised. But it's certainly not something I've considered before. I do, I do apologise for interrupting your flow, but that was a fairly critical moment uh, for me. <laughs> well, it's important to get that sort of information correct, Craig. Don't lead you down the wrong path. What's that? You made an alien? I'll cut ya. Um, oh yes, yeah, so, uh, Ripley's finally been beaten by the corporation, she makes her sacrifice at the end of Alien 3. So then you take the protagonist and make her, against her will, the antagonist. Mm. And I I like that idea. Oh, and on paper it's great. Could, yeah, and you could even play with the idea of nature versus nurture. And perhaps there was something inherent in the DNA that composes Ripley that means that she's always going to be good, though she fights against aliens. But instead, they cram in a ham-fisted, nonsensical... Yeah, she's got genetic memories now explanation, mm. so they can have the same character, more or less. And really, that's very disappointing. Mm. And again, utterly, utterly nonsensical. Joss Whedon's script is less Joss Whedon-y than usual. Which is a plus. <laughs> Generally a plus, yes. But some of his trademark humour is in there. For example, would all the aliens please report to level one? Mm -hmm. And it's not that it's not funny, because it certainly can be. But it's more that it just doesn't fit with the tone of the film, and certainly not the tone of the series. Winona Ryder, being a robot, is completely underwritten, and her character, as seen in the final product, isn't much more than the other films had androids. So this one, we better mark that off the checklist for this film also. See also the computer being called Father when Alien had a computer called oh. Mother. Yes, I can just point out at this point as well that I'm not sure at what stage this design decision was made, but this particular model of android, apparently, for some reason, maybe the, maybe the consumer workshopped it or... Whatever, and people said they preferred androids which looked like startled rabbits the whole time. I don't know. <laughs> so you've got that rebellious androids seem a bit much, but if you are going to do that as a plot line, then commit to it and don't make it a largely throwaway line. Mm. Uh, we rebelled, did you? And no, no, I'm just I'm telling you we rebelled. Okay. <laughs> Duly noted. <laughs> Jean-Pierre Chenet was a very strange... <laughs> 
<laughs> I heard you badmouthing my movie. <laughs> Actually, talking of badmouthing this movie, on the the Alien quadrilogy box set and the Blu-rays as well, there are introductions for the director's cut. And James Cameron said, "I really want, we always wanted to make it a bit longer to make the journey a bit more arduous." And Ridley Scott mentions why he um, did what he did. The introduction by Jean Pierre Junet to the direct, the supposed director's cut of Alien Resurrection is really, really bitter. Is it? He's going, yeah, it's, um, he's not happy about it at all. So you're going to see um, the special edition now. And really, if this is not the director's cut, I promise you, it's not the director's cut. The one that was in cinemas is the director's cut, and we were really proud of it. <laughs> he's really angry about it. <laughs> but yes, I think wow. he's just a strange choice for this. And I think his visual style and his palette doesn't really fit with an alien film. No. That said, there is an argument to be made that in a long-running series like this, that there is value to be had in giving each film a distinct identity. Oh, definitely. Alien had a very specific look. Aliens, while necessarily sharing some elements, had its own identity, both in terms of content and visuals. Alien 3, perhaps the least individual visually, being closest to Alien, with some elements of Aliens thrown in, but its bronzed palette is quite different to the blues and greys of the preceding films, and tonally very different too. And Prometheus, even, is incredibly distinctive, looking nothing at all like the rest of the series. Sadly, Covenant looks largely identical to it and breaks that pleasing trend. But in that regard, Resurrection is successful, even if I personally don't like the look of it. The fact that it did have its own distinct style is a good thing. But I just think that Genet was the wrong choice for this film. Partly too, I think that Genet too often casts for interesting faces rather than mm-hmm. interesting performances. Mm-hmm. And those faces and look great when they're gurning in a magical realist uh, setting. Yes. Are you reading my notes in here? In a French art house movie, <laughs> which is clearly the instruction he gave to Dan Hedaya and no yes. one else. Uh, no, I don't know. Yeah, he clearly casts for interesting faces. Um, and that's probably a boon in the city of lost mm. children or even Amelie. It doesn't, however, work in an alien film. <laughs> and again, why I think Chris would be reading my notes, as a case study... I direct you towards Dan Hadaya's wildly, <laughs> comedically swirling eyeballs when the alien takes a chunk out of the back of his skull. <laughs> That's exactly the bit I'm thinking of. <laughs> I have this notion that, and I'm going to put out a request there because I know people who listen to this will be much more skilled in the art of iMovie than I am. But I had a dream last night in preparation for this podcast and I spent a lot of time today thinking about it. I will send the Blu-ray individual blu-ray of your choice not box set i'm not made of money to the person (laughs) who posts us a link to a piece of work they have done on youtube where they intercut back and forward between shots of dan hedaya gurning in this movie and greg wallace from uk masterchef reacting to puddings (laughs) that he likes and i just wanted to cut back and forward between those with some jaunty music in the background and i will send you the blu-ray of your choice that's a promise a very specific request. And I will go to my grave happy. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, that, that scene just, uh, what is going on with Dan Adaya's eyes in that scene? Oh, where he's like, Mental. when he's rolling the, if I remember correctly, where he's rolling the grenades into the escape pod or whatever, and he's like saluting, which is the point at which the alien comes up behind him, isn't it? There's these yeah, bizarre just, facial, the yeah, these, but even before that, like the bizarre facial expressions he's making while he's like doing that with the nades. And the rest of it is just absolutely... And it is so clear that he's been directed that way. But at some point, when dealing with every other cast member, uh, Jean-Pierre Genet has 
you know, has given them a different set of instructions. Right, you're in this movie. Nobody tell Dan, but he's in another. <laughs> he's in another movie I'm doing. It just looks a lot like this one, and it shares a lot of the sets. <laughs> Um, it's um, bizarre Dan Hedaya's performance if you took footage from Dan Hedaya and lifted it digitally out of this and transposed it into Delicatessen or City of Lost Children it would and, and you graded it to match you wouldn't be able to tell that he hadn't been in those movies to begin with you can certainly tell that he should never have been in Alien Resurrection <laughs> but and also isn't he wonderfully hairy the man is a veritable gorilla but there you go majestic sorry Drew that's twice I've done that uh, to you now that's quite alright, it's funny um, <laughs> My my next line of my notes does in fact read Sadly it falls apart spectacular in the last 20 minutes Which is not strictly accurate because it wasn't massively together for the rest of it um, I do stand by my, um, my proposition that There are elements of something interesting in there But yeah, for me it just It falls apart so much in the last 20 minutes You know, what with all of the maternal bonding nonsense Ripley hugging aliens and all of the roaring. And the weird, the weird baby alien doing a passable impersonation of Paul Bearer as it gets as it gets stuck through a hole in a window. Oh, see, oh, that, the power of the urn. Oh no, that Julian, Julian Eamon, Julian Eamon, Julian Eamon, Eamon Holmes, human alien hybrid is great design because that thing looks creepy as hell. Oh, it does um, up until a point, and then it's yeah, laughable. It just, <laughs> It just yes. doesn't work, but it is super creepy looking. Mm. Um, oh, if I woke up in the middle of the night and it was just towering over my bed, <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't need to lay a finger on me to end me. I can tell you that much now. But, um, you know, when you've paid 12 quid for the privilege to get in and what, well, I don't think it was 12 quid when I saw it back in the cinema then. But like sixpence, but um, yes, it's not quite what I was looking for. But sorry, once again, I've rudely interrupted. In Alien... Ash talked about how he admired their purity, and I think it's that very purity that made Alien such an enduring thing. Alien Resurrection ruins that, as does Prometheus, obviously. Thanks, Ridley. The denouement has more than a hint of the demise of Frankenstein's creature about it, Mm. and, you know, that may actually have been poignant had Ripley had anything whatsoever to do with its creation, but since Ripley died 200 years ago, she did not. And the fact that the Ripley hybrid thing that's there, number eight, is sort of shares genes with it, is that's a byproduct. You didn't mm. have any will involved, so doesn't the kind of maternal themes that they play with there? There is there's um, one other scene don't that work. I found similarly a little bit poignant, which is the room where uh, which is where Ripley comes across the room of the, the failed yeah, the uh, Ripley experiments, mm-hmm. previous incarnations, you know, some of which are Still, unfortunately, breathing, and she finds that emotionally quite difficult, which one can imagine. Yeah. Um, well, well, she finds it emotionally difficult because of this stupid shoehorned in genetic memory thing. Otherwise, she probably wouldn't give a shit. <laughs> um, but I found that that scene stuck out for me. I remember at the time in the cinema, in particular, as I thought, oh, actually, um, I might not be enjoying this up until this point, but this this has the potential to go down a pretty interesting um, avenue, and then mm-hmm. resolutely fails to do so. Because I mean, it's been a theme through a lot of the films about like maternal instinct, that sort of thing. Ripley saving Newt because she's lost her daughter, I and mean, she would have done it anyway, I think. But there's that different relationship there that a male protagonist wouldn't have had, I suspect. Um, not quite in the same way. And that's all interesting. You have like the alien queen and things, but at the end of Alien Resurrection, as well as Ripley supposedly having maternal feelings for this terrifying creature, 
there's a moment right before the alien-human hybrid rips the face off of the alien queen, where the alien queen is supposedly looking, feels like kind of, the suggestion is that she's looking at it in a kind of maternal, oh, there's my new baby sort mm-hmm. of way. But that absolutely doesn't work, because earlier in the film, we've already established that that um, creature, the queen, is only about species survival, mm-hmm. because she sacrifices two of her own offspring yeah. to burn a hole in the floor to escape. Yeah. So you can't have that in one part of the film and then decide, oh no, she's actually got maternal instincts at the end. She, she deserved to get her damn face ripped off. Yeah, um, you can't have it both ways. Either this is an intelligent, well, I think there's definitely an intelligence creature, but there's this, uh, this creature that, in similar ways to some humans, has this maternal instinct, or they are very alien in every way and are really just in it for the species survival things so to act in a complete animalistic mm. way, in which case, you know, killing the the two aliens that are in that room with her after Brad Dourif tormented her to escape, or she has maternal instincts beyond just making sure that her eggs survive. No, but they tried to have both and it doesn't work. Yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. In annoying. a film of things that do, that do not work. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that also does not work. <laughs> but it's right yeah. up there at the top of the list of things that do not work, I will grant you that. Yeah, I always had a bit of a problem with that, I must say. I found that a little bit uh, disjointed. Again, the director's the wrong choice because it's the wrong visual style for this, this <laughs> genre. The wrong really, because he's freaking mental. <laughs> for me, Alien Resurrection is, I definitely don't feel it's anything like as bad as I felt it was in the past. It's more just, it's disappointing because, yes, there are genuinely some interesting ideas in mm. there, but it just handles them in such a ridiculous and ham-fisted this manner. Is, this, is a, this is a cinematic universe comprised of nothing but amazing ideas, and from this film onwards, it is a series which <laughs> resolutely fails to capitalise on any of those. Yes, it, it seems to, at this point, yes, it's determined to fail to capitalise on anything, and to avoid the mm. point at every potential opportunity. The one other thing I will say about this is that the nice vein of nihilism that Ripley has running through her, this um, very, and I don't know if it's the, 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 the alien side of her expressing itself more, but I remember in particular there's one scene where, obviously, as this best of both worlds uh, superhuman figure, the survivors or you know what remains of the space pirates and whatnot sort of are looking to Ripley to guide them to safety um, and when they realise they're up against this you know apparently unbeatable foe they obviously ask her well Luke w- what did you do um, to which she replies I died <laughs> there's, a, there's something there's something really nice about the acknowledgement there that Luke I'm not getting my hopes up for you guys surviving this so I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually, get your hopes up if I were you either that's I think that's one of the few very Joss Whedon-y lines that actually works. Yes, exactly, because it doesn't um, f- it doesn't generally it like doesn't that feel line. Joss Whedon-y, or it feels Joss Whedon in in some sort of service to the uh, to the plot, uh, or to the character, as opposed to just Joss Whedon trying to be a yeah. smart arse for the sake of being a smart arse. And it helps too when you have somebody as good as Sigourney Weaver who can deliver that line exactly the way it needs to be delivered. Yes. Absolutely. Um, some of the other alien films, and particularly actually the Aliens vs. Predator films, mm. occasionally have a line that might just work if it just wasn't delivered so badly. Mm. Absolutely. There you go. That was Alien Resurrection. Okay then, so... Do I not get to speak about it at all, <laughs> Oh, sorry, Scott. Mm. Weirdly, I had the thought no, 60 sorry, seconds ago, Scott hasn't just... spoken about this yet, that he immediately <laughs> forgot. I kind That's of fine. missed... <laughs> missed you there as well, mate. Just... just, sorry. just... <laughs> Just go on. Can I, sorry, can I just also point out before <laughs> before we afford Scott his two pence, Drew? 
Can I just point <laughs> out that I know you're, uh, Drew, you're saying this isn't as bad as you expected, but what surprises me about it, and especially given the, the reception it got at the time, which I thought was reasonably justified, there were some parts about the film that I actually liked in spite of itself, but currently sitting with a Metacritic score of 63, which, give or take a couple of percentage, suggests that on average, critics think this is two-thirds of the perfect film. And I would, <laughs> yeah. I would argue that in no way, shape or form is that anywhere close to the truth. Yeah, it's got a rating in IMDb of like 6.6 or something Jesus like that. Christ, what are people smoking? On? Young ones today. <laughs> it's the young ones ruining it. The 6.4 out of 10 from 223,000 um, ratings on IMDb. Oh, wow. And, oh no, sorry, no, wait, that's Alien 3. Hold on, Alien 3, 6.4. Alien Resurrection is 6.3. Oh, wow, so point 0.1 behind Alien 3. I don't think so. <laughs> yes. I don't know, but let's not go down. That's a that's a rabbit hole that we're about to head down there. Let's not pay too much attention to IMDb <laughs> user ratings. Aye, but there you go. So anyway, Drew, I think we were just saying that's Alien Resurrection. And, uh, yes, uh, and Scott doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Scott. No, go ahead. You've really covered pretty much. I was going to say anyway. <laughs> yes, but I'd wager that what you've like, got to though, say is probably a damn sight more insightful and entertaining than anything we've had to say. Oh, I, 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 I very much doubt it. The only thing I, I... I paid no attention to Alien Resurrection since it's released in cinemas. I remember watching it during university and thinking it was as bad as everyone else thought it was at the time. And having seen no uh, Jean-Pierre Junot films at all by that point, and... I hadn't thought of it at all until last week, really. Um, apart from it being being that film you always had to buy when you bought the Aliens box set on DVD <laughs> the and then free coaster that came and it always with felt the box a bit of it. <laughs> yeah, that that film you always resented buying but never actually watched. But I, I was surprised when I did watch it that I wouldn't say it's a good film. I, I wouldn't even go as so far as to say I like it, but I did think I can find a lot more things to appreciate now, having seen many other Jean-Pierre Jeunet films in this film. And you certainly can't deny that he has stamped his authority mm. all over it. This feels it, like a Jean-Pierre Jeunet film. It has a style, it, uh, which so yes, many um, sequels yeah, in the long right. series tend not it to does have. At least the four does that. And I mean, that, if you look at the other films, I mean, there's only really many ways you can tell alien kills everyone <laughs> yes. it's stories and it has felt like different films each time i think john piergino was not the right choice for resurrection uh, i would disagree with you slightly drew i think his tone and josh whedon's script do tie up quite well together because you know is always a fairly playful director as well and that kind of ties in with the oh, no, I don't, uh, uh, I think, script i think the style and script tie together i just don't think they tie with alien that's my problem which is is entirely correct is, is what i was going to go on and say as well it, it doesn't really fit with the rest of the franchise and it's it's an interesting little side project, and I can appreciate elements of it. I can appreciate the the moments of Jean Pierre's style coming through. However, yeah, as an Aliens film, it's not actually very good. Um, it's more interesting mm. than I think Prometheus and Alien Covenant. It's not better than mm. it, but <laughs> I because it's more interesting. <laughs> but because it's more interesting, it might be better than it, depending on how you look at it. Um, I think <laughs> Prometheus is a far more competent story, but it's boring, and uh, Alien Resurrection is. An incompetent story, but it's interesting. Mm. So um, make of that what you will. If you haven't seen it at all or haven't seen it since it's showing many years ago, it's worth giving it another look, I think. But don't go expecting that you'll you know, have your opinion I'll, massively changed. I'll give it another watch, and mm. but I cannot for life me remember. I would assume that from the Blu-ray it is the director's cut, which isn't a director's cut, that I've ripped to my network drive. Uh, mm. I, well, they're both on there. Depends which one you saw. Well, that's it exactly. That's what I'm saying. I would assume that it's the that I've defaulted to the director's cut, not realizing that it's not the preferred version because all of my 
Blu-rays are now comfortably in a storage unit in Chester somewhere, and I, I ain't going. I ain't going down there just to get this. <laughs> um, but I will. I will revisit it and uh, and see. But if, if only everybody else had acted the way that Dan Hedaya acts in this, <laughs> and it hadn't been about a space vessel, it'd been, you know. Uh, I don't know, a French research vessel that gets stuck in pack ice in the Arctic Circle or something like that. And then it would have been a proper <laughs> Jean-Pierre Jeunet film and it might have been good. Yeah. But uh, if you're going to hate on a film, you'd be better off spending your energy hating on something far worse than this. Because, yeah, it's not the worst film ever, but in the context of the mm. Alien movies, it's not good. For Alien research, yes, there are interesting ideas. It's more just like in a, a disappointing film, mm. but it's not... It's not bad, at least I don't feel any more yeah. like I did that it's just a, an outright bad it's, it's film. It's kind of a sounding board for good ideas, yeah. but no one bothered yeah. to make a decent film. <laughs> All I know is that if Jean-Pierre Genet had not made Alien Resurrection, then maybe he wouldn't have made Amelie. And Amelie is one of the greatest films of all time, so I'm happy yeah. that he made Alien Resurrection. Resurrection is a price worth paying in that respect. So then... <laughs> We move on. <laughs> Did anyone the... else feel we've probably spent a disproportionate amount of time <laughs> discussing that dirt? <laughs> oh my dear. Oh, if you want to talk about spending a disproportionate amount of time talking about turds, Craig, you're, you're in for a treat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, we move on to the clearly much more shadowed Prometheus. Oh, God. Okay, I worry about Ridley Scott. I really do. Despite having talked regularly since not long after the release of Alien about wanting to return to the Alien universe and to make a prequel that would show the origins of the creatures, he will do things like pop up in interviews, as in a recent episode of Radio 4's The Film Programme, and state, flat out, and with no seeming hint of irony, I don't do backstory. Huh? Yeah. Uh, Is that all he does at this point? Yes, he's basically created the backstory universe in terms of Prometheus, back, Alien Covenant, and Alien back, Covenant 2. The BCU. Yeah. The backstory cinematic universe. Uh, really, Craig, I was... He I was, did um, not say that. He did. I was like, honestly, I couldn't um, believe what I was listening to. Oh. And I honestly had to take it back and re-listen to it about six times to, like... It, you know, he did say that. He was talking to Francine Stock He's a better, he's a better comedian these days than he is a film director, then. <laughs> um, he's talking to Francine Stock on Radio 4's The Film Programme because uh, Alien Covenant got released earlier than the United States. It was out here last week, the week before. And he said that... Um, something I'll mention in a minute about people weren't asking the right questions about Alien. Oh, I've heard him say that before, yeah. Then she said, but let me ask you this. When you were talking, when you were making Alien, did you consider, like, what happened before Alien, where they came from? And he said, he just said straight up, I don't do backstory. And I, but you're on this program talking about Alien Covenant, which is an the entire film of backstory that nobody wanted. The prequel movie you've made to that first movie where yes. you hadn't <laughs> considered the prequels. Yes. Yeah, but he doesn't do backstory to those prequels. <laughs> ah. Hence my statement, Craig, of I worry about Ridley Scott. Oh, my days. Um, yes, I worry about Ridley Scott. I really, really do. <laughs> I think he's having something of a psychological breakdown in his latter years. I think since his brother topped himself, he's been face-to-face with the mirror of his own mortality for some time now. And I think perhaps, because he's, what, 70-something now? Four or something like that? He's clocking on, isn't he? Um, he's becoming an older gentleman certainly yes, yes. Um, um i'm a bit worried that he might have something rattling about up there to be honest if he can sit there straight faced well but we'll never know because it was on the radio <laughs> we, we perhaps won't know what his face looks like but if he can sit there and say he doesn't do backstory well he's promoting he the this year, backstory movie he what now he'll be 80 this year oh my days 
And for for an eighty year old, he's looking good actually. But yeah. um, yes. But so Ridley Scott has worried me for a while actually, though, because when he's you know he's saying things a few years ago now, but basically ruining Blade Runner by saying, "Oh no, categorically as a director of Blade Runner, I think Re- um, Deckard was a replicant." Mm. Stop missing the point. The whole point of that film mm. is you didn't know. Exactly. Why don't you understand your own films? Mm. <laughs> yes, the, the stick with Prometheus for now. Let's like, not go down another rabbit hole. Yes, after his crazy statement of oh, I don't do backstory. It does make me wonder if this apparent cognitive dissonance is what largely contributed to him so spectacularly missing the point when he brought his all-backstory, all-the-way prequel Prometheus to the screen. Well, that and letting Damon Lindelof write the script, obviously. This Sunday, 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 backstory, story, story. <laughs> and he really did miss the point. In that same interview, Scott mentioned, nobody asked the question what the ship was. Who was the bloody space pilot? What were the eggs? Because nobody cared, Ridley. <laughs> it is, and always was, about the alien. To further support that point of view, the characters in his own film that he directed didn't care. When Ash, Kane and Lambert, who it would seem from context have never seen an alien species before, discover the space jockey sitting in his chair, their responses could largely be summed up as, Alien fella, huh? Well, what do you know? <laughs> Move along. And if they don't care, why should we? <laughs> Same <laughs> different day. <laughs> While everyone else cares about the alien and not a heck of a lot else, Scott seems interested in almost anything but, with principal focus going to who or what created humans and what we would do or say if we could meet our makers. Archaeologist Elizabeth Shaw, no mere pass, frustratingly and unnecessarily hamstrung by an English accent, doesn't Sweden exist in 2094? discovers paintings in several ancient sites around Earth and concludes that the remarkable similarities point to an ancient visit by interstellar travellers and that the paintings constitute maps. Receiving funding from Guy Pearcy's Wayland Corporation, Shaw and a team of scientists board a ship called Prometheus and set out to follow the map and, she hopes, meet God. To the surprise of no one in the audience, when they finally find the planet, things do not go well, as the crew have to deal with some sort of nasty mutagenic virus a nasty god creature, and a nasty robot. In the words of Traegar, ooh, nasty. <laughs> Despite being a crew of accomplished scientists, everyone is also an idiot. <laughs> Bad enough when the crew of the Nostromo failed to follow quarantine procedures, they were just cargo haulers, but these Muppets should know better. And as soon as it, as it is decided that the air is breathable, off come the helmets. That's fair enough, really, because there was absolutely nothing in our planet's history to suggest that there could be anything bad but unseen in the air, right? Um, (laughs) Remarkably, Alien Covenant is even more cavalier in this regard. (laughs) This blatant disregard for the rigours of their scientific disciplines is compounded by the fact that everyone is a complete tool. And if they're lucky, they have one characteristic. There's belligerent, for some reason, geologist man. Glasses wearing man. (laughs) Old man. (laughs) Gumpy woman. I'm going to entirely ignore the fact you hit me in the head with a fire extinguisher the next time we meet women. This Justice League film is not going to go well, is it? I just presses the button on the ship, man. And Idris Elba. And Manfred Mann's Earthbound man. <laughs> oh, dear. The only two characters given any, well, character are Shaw and Weirdo Robot by. And I have big issues with Weirdo Robot Life. <laughs> in Alien, Ash always struck me 
as not so much malevolent, but something more akin to HAL in 2001 A Space Odyssey. As much a victim of the Wayland Yutani Corporation as any of the Nostromo's expendable crew. And that running thread throughout the series that human corruption and avarice were the greatest dangers, not vicious space monsters, was always very compelling and, sadly for our species, spot on. And that's another thing that gets thrown out in Prometheus as Michael, mm. Fass, uh, as Michael Fassbender's super creepy David comes across as something of a combination of Victor Frankenstein and the sort of cruel little boy who pulls the wings off of flies just to see what happens, but crucially, was never told by his parents that this was wrong and a bad thing to do. And he's basically just scaled up from flies to humans. Characters aside, or lack of characters aside, Prometheus's largest problem is that it is suffering from an identity crisis. Got originally, though I refer you back to our earlier conversations, I suspect he has several variations of his own backstory, wanted to make a film in the alien universe, but with its own mythology. Fair enough. Seeking one's maker, philosophical questions about our place in the universe, life, death, existence, creation, all of these are legitimate and potentially interesting themes. But not in something that may have begun as something else entirely, but has now clearly been grafted onto an aliens film. The sutures are obvious, and Prometheus strains at the joints. Ridley Scott and the film's marketing persisted for a curiously long time with the message that this was in no way a prequel to Alien, despite very clearly being a prequel to <laughs> Alien. He doesn't do backstory, alright? <laughs> <laughs> it's ambitious, possibly even wondrous, but it has lost all of the tension and suspense that made Alien Sussex such a success. <laughs> Alien sausages. Alien sausages, yes. yes. I'll try that one again. It's ambitious, possibly even wondrous, but it has lost all of the tension and suspense that made Alien such a success more than 30 years previously. <laughs> Alien colon sausages. <laughs> just Edris Elba walking his dog and getting jumped by an alien from a bush. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Danny Dyer in the background. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We've already I'm on my way film. to meet. <laughs> I'm on my way to meet the galaxy's most vicious aliens. <laughs> Danny Dyer, <laughs> I believe in sausages. Oh, you're just sending things out for the Danny Dyer cinematic universe, aren't you? As aliens run around in the background, he's more he's more interested in sausages. But again, rabbit hole. <laughs> I digress. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh dear. Much like us when it comes to Danny Dyer, apparently it also misses restraint. Uh, there was there was so little music in Alien, and like Jaws, it was never needed. The for the most part. The low hum of the engines, the dripping of water, the gentle clanking of the chains hanging from the ceiling. It was masterful. In Prometheus, the order of the day is Massively overbearing percussion-led orchestra, please. No, louder than that. Louder. Yes, there we go so we can't hear anything else. Perfect. It is, however, absolutely gorgeous and possibly the single sharpest film that I have ever seen. Mm. It's full of detail. Which is good, because you'll have plenty of time to study it all, and it will give you something to do as the narrative dawdles along doing nothing interesting. 
There are scenes from Sky in Scotland and the Wadi Rum Valley in Jordan, but most of the photography took place in Iceland, and it is bleak, otherworldly, <laughs> and arrestingly beautiful. And funny for some reason. <laughs> most of the filming took place in Iceland and out back behind the bins. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, just down past the frozen peas. Yes. Sorry. As I say, it's arrestingly beautiful. Um, it is also real. Clearly real. While some of the shots may have been digitally manipulated, the source is a real place. And it makes so much difference. There is quite a backlash, and I see a lot on Twitter, to the anti-CGI backlash that clearly I am a part of. But there is still an inability or unwillingness to create computer-generated environments that look like this. And as well as immediately engage me more because I know that this is a place that exists, we are also spared that horrible CGI light that never looks quite right. Um, alas, the visuals of Prometheus just aren't enough on their own, and Prometheus is just dull. Backstory that no one wanted, alongside a bunch of metaphysical questions it can't or won't answer. It's a bummer. Uh, it's an anti-hoot, is what it is. Booja baja, booja baja. <laughs> um, you've said that quite concisely to the extent <laughs> that I don't think there's anything I really need to say, and anything that no. I do say, I'm just going to say for Alien Covenant because I've exactly the same criticisms <laughs> about that film as I do mm. with this one. So we'll cover that at that point. But no, um, yes, I, I'll echo it. It's a gorgeous film. It's really well produced. The, the production values is incredible on it, but that is really the only thing that's got going mm-hmm. for it. Um, it's really pretty, but the rest of it is pretty mm. much miss it just doesn't understand what the point of the aliens franchise is and fair enough you can ask those questions but don't tack it onto an aliens film because it doesn't make any sense to do so and it just feels weird and it's um, this and again i'm going to say exactly the same thing about covenant as well when we talk about it in a minute but this film considering it's not filling in backstory, wink, wink, <laughs> um, raises far more questions than it answers, which isn't really all that satisfying. If for one half-truth you reveal, you add three or four seemingly entirely random uh, new <laughs> elements, which I, at this point, was already struggling to see how they were going to tie stuff together for Alien, um, and which in Covenant it will just will seem to tie himself in knots a bit. One of the things that I think about this movie, which sticks in my craw a little bit, and again points to Ridley Scott being a pathological liar, <laughs> um, and I again will present to you the evidence of Alien Covenant, uh, was the whole... Um, Please don't present Alien his- Covenant to us, it wouldn't be welcomed. <laughs> what if I present its head on a platter? Was that at the suggestion there had been studio interference um, when it was revealed that Prometheus would be aiming for a 12 certificate? Uh, and Ridley Scott's suggestion that no, um, it tells the story we need to tell. The studios had no say in that whatsoever. That is the film I want to make. Uh, and we'll see how seamlessly the tone of this film fits in with the ultra sweary, uh, ultra bloody um, alien covenant. I I can't remember where I was going with that. I had a very definite point to make and I have drifted <laughs> uh, somewhat. Uh, yes, the man's a pathological liar. Did we mention that? Uh, yeah, no, I, I, don't think he's, I honestly don't think he's a liar. I think it's cognitive dissonance, like I mentioned earlier. I think he doesn't really understand how these two competing ideas in his head don't go together. And he's, mm. um, 
It's a deeply unsatisfying film, but I've I've gone back since I watched it at the cinema. I have gone back a couple of times to watch it again because I keep having this hope against hope that I'm going to actually find something in it that I missed and it's going to turn out that it's actually quite good because I really, really wanted it to work. I, I didn't go in wanting this film to fall flat in its face, but it's, well, it, seems it like kind of a, does. It seems like there's a lot of stuff there that if you jiggled about a bit and looked at it funny, it might become a decent film in some way, but no. Yeah. It never does. Um, <laughs> and I, I did mention Damon Lindelof, which um, him being involved with the screenplay, probably not a good thing. But when you see Alien Covenant, which is basically the same film again, it's, it clearly wasn't just a, a Damon Lindelof thing, completely different screenwriters in the second one. I think the problem is Ridley Scott. And mm. it makes me so, so grateful once again that Dennis Villeneuve is doing the Blade Runner sequel and not Ridley Scott. Yeah, exactly. I, I have never been so grateful of anything in my life and that they handed Denny Villeneuve the keys to the Blade Runner sequel because I would be broken hearted if Ridley Scott had anything to do with because it. Because you just know he would again have missed the point. It's like, it's, when I mentioned earlier about him deciding that, because when, when a director says it, it almost becomes canon, right? His um, mm. statement about Deckard definitely being a replicant. I was like, you really don't understand your own movie, so please just leave stuff alone, Ridley. No. No. I, oh, God, what, what was that I wanted to say about Prometheus? I'll, I might remember it when we go on to Covenant. I might not. I don't think the world's waiting with bated breath for me to say anything more insightful about it. I think. Oh, yeah. I did actually, the one thing I did appreciate about um, Prometheus was that sort of uh, pre-release little commercial for David, the corporate, uh, the corporate commercial for the David um, Android uh, was a lovely little thing that existed out in the world for its own, and f- which gave me great hope. I think might have been more responsible for my hope in the movie than anything else. But yeah, that all went a bit Pete Tong, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Then. Anywho, so, so we move on to the current most recent entry into the franchise, the sixth film. Which I mean, so th- at least they haven't come along as frequently, say, the Bond films or something over their time, because six films in forty years isn't too bad. We're not being yeah. overserved by alien films, but we're kind of being underserved by the quality. So, alien Covenant, then, Scott. Yeah, Alien Covenant. Uh, did you like Prometheus, you weirdo? In <laughs> which case, I'm sure you like Aliens Covenant, as despite the title, it's far closer to Prometheus 2 than the aliens of yore, and there's maybe five or six people in the world who would celebrate that fact, while the rest of us must consign ourselves to dumpster fire duty. The likeable crew of the colonisation ship Covenant are given a rude awakening from hypersleep when an unusual signal is detected. Unfortunately, in the process, their captain, James Franco, is incinerated in what must be the earliest death for what I guess we can call an A-lister, although it does make me rather question why hypersleep pods were connected to the gas mains. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't understand what happened there at all. Um, it's just like, do they sleep with fire in there? What's going on? <laughs> Well, you've got to stay warm, I suppose. It does also. <laughs> Hot water bottle, duh. So, this means that the slightly awkward Oram, Billy Crudup, must take command, with the now second-in-command Daniels, Catherine Watterson, questioning his religious beliefs for no obvious reason apart from clumsily introducing a tertiary theme to the piece. Once the crew have said their goodbyes to dear old Captain who that was his face <laughs> their attention turns to the signal, which seems to include snippets of a woman singing, despite them being way out past where humans had boldly gone before. They take a detour to investigate over Daniel's objections, which only really make sense if she had access to the script, 
or at least the film title and a working knowledge of the survival rates they're in. <laughs> Turns out the planet would make a suitable colonisation target, prompting Oram to wonder if it's better to set up shop here rather than risk another few years of deep freeze voyaging. But before any decision is made, they explore the area to find the source of the signal, a crashed vessel. Vessel? A crashed vessel? <laughs> Piloted by Sean Connery. <laughs> a nuclear vessel. A crashed vessel that will look familiar to the viewers of Prometheus, as will Michael Fassbender's David, which comes as a surprise to the crew who have their own model, Walter. They're sporting a generic American accent rather than a bizarre Lawrence of Arabia homage. The trick, Potter, is not minding that it sucks. Anyway, Ridley Scott, Ridley Scott has taken up the mantle of killing off main characters off-screen between films, with Numero Pace apparently having died peacefully sometime after resoldering David's bonds back onto his bod. And, well, I suppose I'll have to stop recapping here before getting too deep into spoiler territory, but I assume I am not blowing any minds to reveal that there are aliens around, and you do what aliens are wont to do to the crew, and indeed it turns out that things are not what they seem. Trailers for Alien Covenant suggested a return to the classic alien formula, or at least the classic alien design, and while that's there, and to be fair, used to great effect during sections that would be entertaining in the context of a better film, <laughs> it's somewhat obscured by Scott deciding that the question of what are the xenomorphs is best answered by whatever you want them to be, including an airborne pathogen, or magic, or a suitable furniture polish substitute. Or whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> indeed, for a film with Alien in the title, it doesn't seem to care all that much about the Xenomorphs. It seems that Ridley is far more excited by the prospect of artificial intelligence, and at the risk of spoiling things, artificial intelligence doing the thing that artificial intelligence near enough always does. Weirdly, it also seems that David has cultivated a vendetta against the precursors, or whatever we're calling them big blue boys now, for no explained reason I can recall. Well, as most apart from that whole decapitation thing, might have coloured his perception a little bit. Anyway, it seems like an undue amount of the film is based around David trying to corrupt Walter with his master race propaganda, <laughs> along with a side helping of the whole meeting your makers thing, and that might work if Fassbender's David wasn't the most irritating thing of all time, he said with nearly a trace of hyperbole. Yeah. People keep talking about how good Michael Fassbender is as David, and then possibly because he's so hateful as a good performance. But oh, David's just so <laughs> creepy. I liked him in Prometheus, but I didn't. I I thought actually that he came across um, rather poorly in this. Not a fan of this performance at no, all. Nor am I. Um, I can kind of see. Um, I mentioned a little bit earlier why Ridley Scott's been going that way. There's only so much you can do with an antagonist that's a pure killing machine. It's not like a xenomorph's going to branch out into white-collar crime or work his way up the ranks of a mafia crime family, although I would totally watch either of those films. Mm -hmm. um, but given that the plots of the first four alien films are essentially one-slash-many-alien-slash-kill-everyone, the most variation comes from the directorial style. I understand why Scott would not want to just rehash Alien again and why he'd want to explore new corners. I'm just not convinced that this is a franchise in which to have those discussions, as they're only tangentially concerned with your titular protagonist. You mentioned about like there not being so much or so many more ways you can explore the idea of alien arrives, alien kills everybody. And really there isn't. So make a different film. Don't set it in this universe because that's why like, those films work. That's why people love those films. If you can't think of something else to do, don't do it. Yeah. And you're that busy trying to convince us it's not backstory. Yes. <laughs> Put your money where your mouth is. Do something else. It seems fairly mm -hmm. straightforward yeah. to me. But uh, that something yeah. else wouldn't have the bankable word alien stamped on the front <laughs> yeah, of it. Yeah, this is the problem, isn't it? He wouldn't get his hundred million dollars or whatever this doubtless cost. You cynical, cynical person. And how much Prometheus cost a hundred and thirty million dollars just for principal photography, so I don't know how much Covenant mm. cost. Uh, according to this, 97 million, which is about in 
what I would expect in terms of you can tell this is a little bit scaled back in terms of production. Mm-hmm. Not least of all because um, clearly for the first couple of instances where we see an alien creature, um, Scott clearly went to the Amiga demo scene um, and issued them with a brand new less than 4K challenge uh, for the for the... <laughs> For the CG, but um, I, I, I take exception right off the bat with something that you said, Scott. I agree with you pretty much everything apart from the fact you described it as a likable crew because I found them to be a complete shower of non-entities. Well, exactly, um, Craig. Exactly. I'm with you too. But none of the crew have characters. No, Danny. I think Danny McBride. Exactly. I know what you're going to say. Tennessee. He's he's got a hat and he's called Tennessee. But don't don't even expect him to go so far as to stick to some sort of cowboy stereotype because they don't even do that he's just a man who wears yes. a hat and there go therefore he's called tennessee this is uh, danny mcbride has a hat the ripley substitute in this film is mm-hmm. a person who has short hair yeah. the, the- and who i and who rubbed me up so the wrong way in this i found her so not really annoying but, but genuinely pretty much the only thing i can remember about her she has some short mm-hmm. hair that's yeah. it. She has no other character attributes. I, apart from apart from that character, Daniels, apart from Tennessee and the fact that Fassbender is David and Walter, I can't tell you a single other name of a character in this film. Yeah, um, I can I can remember Billy Crudup because I remember thinking he's been given a pretty thankless task. Billy Crudup has been mm. um, given the religious thing that Elizabeth Shaw had in Prometheus. Mm. It doesn't have anything to do with it. It doesn't go anywhere. It's like, ah, mm-hmm. oh, uh, you clearly have a dilemma because people won't follow you because you're religious. Yeah, because that's stopped people for thousands of years of human history. Okay. And so I remember Billy Crudup. I can't remember his name. I remember that he had a wife. I don't know her name. <laughs> Momentarily. <laughs> um, I remember that there's Danny McBride also had a wife. And I remember him saying, my wife doesn't get afraid, but she seemed to get afraid almost instantly with anything at all. So that's doesn't mm-hmm. work i've never seen my i've never seen my wife afraid before uh, really and um we have <laughs> and there's a really block horror scene in a shower and danny mcbride has a hat I mean, largely mm-hmm. what i remember from this film is danny mcbride has a hat i've <laughs> got a real soft spot for danny mcbride ever since he's bound and down i really took to him in that and i know a lot of people find him quite great and i've got a real soft spot for danny mcbride and that vein of humor that he repeats over and over, oh. I always give him a pass. It's like Topic and I'm Thunder and Pineapple in- Express and stuff. I like Danny McBride a lot. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but he was the only good thing in Tropic Thunder. I'd, I'd wager. The I'm always pleased and I'm almost always pleasantly rewarded when I see a sort of steadfast comic actor given a serious role uh-huh. because they almost always pull it out of the bag. And there are hints there that Danny McBride could have given actually a really, really good performance had he been given any material to work with. But none of these people have got any material to work with. Yeah, he's, he's got a hat, Craig. Yeah. And they all... All he has to work with is a hat. And they all swear a lot needlessly because apparently, you know, despite the fact he doesn't listen to people's criticisms, I think Ridley Scott thought that the problem people had with the last movie was that there was no not enough swearing or violence in it. And clearly that must be what the audience <laughs> wants then. Not a plot or a story um, or some sense of coherence. Yeah, I was really, really gutted for Danny. Mammy Danny. But this Catherine Watterson, who has popped up from I thought nowhere until I looked at her IMDb credentials and I realised that I'd seen her in Inherent Vice. I'd seen her in, um, I think she was in like one or two scenes of Boardwalk Empire. She was in Steve Jobs. And I think it says something about the fact that I didn't realise I'd seen her in anything before. I don't remember her in any of those things. Exactly. Um, I And then she's shoehorned into a vest at the end in this. Uh, what I can only describe as a pathetic attempt 
to ram it down your throat that she's a Ripley analogue for this movie. I just, she's supposed to be this, obviously she's supposed to be this resourceful character who should remind us of Shades of Ripley. And I'm sorry, she just is not. The character is nothing to do with so Ripley at all. wet and empty. I'm also glad you touched upon the fact that, okay, we were never going to this planet. It's popped up. Let's check it out. We've no idea what this thing's about. Everybody out the spaceship. Hmm. Tons out. Guns out. Taps half everybody. Helmets <laughs> off. Let's go, let's go traipsing about. Yes. Sticking our hands in the mud. And, Prometheus, yeah, sticking our hands in the mud and doing X, Y, Z. We have no idea what's happening. Oh, and look, what a surprise. A couple of us have got sick. Um, because as you rightly point out, Scott, apparently the aliens are also spores. Um, I <laughs> yes. don't know. Uh, so, such an incoherent mess. I came out of Prometheus disappointed and having gone and expecting something on the basis of that little... Wheeling Jutani David commercial thing. I thought oh, there's a, you know, uh, some creative time and effort has been expended on uh, on the production or the, even just on the pre-production of this thing. I came out disappointed. I went into this perhaps realistically expecting less, and I came out and I just saw Alien Covenant just a few hours ago. I came out of this almost livid at what a waste of my time it was, what an incoherent mess it was, what. An absolute waste of dumb talent in the cast. What a needless assembly of absolute non-entities the rest of the cast were. It's one of those where, like, a character will pop up. There was a bit near the end of the movie where it's all, everyone's, you know, it's the obligatory chase down dark corridors and bump into each other and almost shoot each other part of, of an alien movie. Where someone shouts to someone, all right, you go that way or something. And there's this dude with this, you know, one of the security team, this dude with a gun who I'm assuming I was supposed to know who he was to begin with but I couldn't remember seeing him before and the crew had been whittled down to a, quite a small number by that, <laughs> that point I thought alright okay I've no idea who you are um, I can't remember I'm looking at the cast list here and I don't recognise any of the names because as I say I couldn't remember them during the movie anyway it's just an absolute non-entity of a thing and again it does that thing that Prometheus did where it actually opens more questions than it answers and not in a satisfying way not questions that are intellectually challenging, just literally it throws out it throws out plot points and stuff out there that serve no other purpose other than to make you scratch your head and go, right, you said there's one more movie after this or two more movies now before we get back to essentially Alien. And I don't know how they're going to tie some of this stuff up. I don't really care at this point, if I'm honest. I am at the point now where this has been sullied enough that I almost don't care that there will be another movie. I know I'm going to go and see it when it does come out because I still hope against hope that it will be, there is still a good alien movie left in this. But I just wish Ridley Scott wasn't so committed to having taken charge of them again to deliver a vision that he is so adamant about, yet he's so... his backstory cinematic universe. A vision that he is so adamant he has, but which so clearly he has got no clue what it is because he is making it up as he goes along at this point. And I honestly, honestly, my theory stands that since his brother's popped his clogs, he's pushing 80, he simply thinks if he announces 10 more alien movies he's going to make, (laughs) death will not lay its icy cold hand on his shoulder because how could it? He's still got 10 alien movies to make. I just, I'm almost at a point where I wish we wake up tomorrow and the news is Ridley Scott's had a heart attack. Brilliant. Someone else, Neil Blomkamp, (laughs) Neil Blomkamp can get to do his alien movie after all. (laughs) <laughs> I know that's. I know that sounds terrible. Harsh. That's harsh. Well, and actually, I'm sitting here thinking, cut that out because that doesn't paint me in the best light. But you know what? Full disclosure, absolute honesty. I actually do wish that Ridley Scott for <laughs> as a heart just, attack. No, listen. <laughs> I just want the cosmos to intervene in some way. Maybe not a heart attack. Maybe just you know 
give him locked in syndrome or something. <laughs> That's better in some way. <laughs> well, maybe the, just just give him a stroke, just just a wee yeah, stroke. That'll maybe do. Maybe then removing his physical capacity, and maybe actually what would happen there is it focuses his mind a bit more, and as a result, we might actually get a decent alien movie after all, albeit directed by some disembodied electronic voice coming from a wheelchair. But um, I don't know. Just go away, Ridley. Just go away. What, what were we talking about? <laughs> 30 minutes ago we both interrupted Scott in the middle of his flow <laughs> But anyway, Scott Disembodied electronic voices coming from wheelchairs directing alien <laughs> It couldn't be any worse I think pretty much everything we need to say in that um, I can't say I was angry with this film I was just bored I mean, It's boring and predictable And you kind of knew where it was going When Scott does get towards just doing an aliens film At the end for like half an hour or something You know, that's that by itself if, would have been fine. It's a, a return to the kind of alien sort of formula stuff. And that's all right. But the rest of the film, all that narrative of like an hour and a half or whatever it is before and with, you know, David wandering around <laughs> talking about his little projects. Um, just no, no one cares. I don't, I don't believe anyone has any interest in that. It is not even remotely close to what this franchise should be talking about. And yeah, just dull yeah. and stupid. And not good. Yeah, I um, <laughs> I watched this and I came out and my first thought was, wow, Alien Covenant is worse than Prometheus. Didn't see that coming. Mm. Because I, I, and I genuinely think it's worse. I, I don't know how that's possible. It's like, it's, it's one of those cheap every other year ELO greatest hits albums that comes out where... Uh, bizarrely, uh, he seems to think the answer is well. I remember what it is people liked about all the scenes people talk about in the other movies. Why don't I just do those again um, with three new tracks I've recorded at the end that highlight how clearly past my prime I am as a recording artist? <laughs> do you know what I mean? So that it can be packaged as a new album. Uh, I just—it's really bizarre. And how cack-handedly is that supposed big twist at the end handled? You couldn't signpost that anymore. Yeah. The scene that sets I, that up, where you're like, "Oh, well, oh well, no, that, mu- I that must." I assumed that was David. coming as soon as you saw the earlier scene. Oh, absolutely! How could it not? Literally, mm, how yeah. could it not? Mm. With that setup, that is. Uh, I just thought, oh my god, there are so many better ways you could have handled that, where it would actually have come as a surprise at the end. Um, at least wait till he removes his hair. Yes. As soon as that happens, well, I know what's going to happen now. Then, aye. Mm-hmm. I don't know we're in spoiler territory there, but, but that's just, it's so early in the film, it's so obvious. Mm-hmm. There you go. But yeah, so, um, again, I'm watching this and I'm thinking, how is that worse than Prometheus? How I did not think that was possible. And with the proviso that I've not yet rewatched Aliens, oh no, in fact, I don't think I've ever actually seen Aliens versus Predator Requiem. Um, <laughs> Alien Covenant is the worst Alien film I've ever seen. It's worse than Aliens versus Predator, which really shocked me, to be honest. And so, so what it turns out is like Ridley Lucas continues to miss the point. <laughs> I'm going to have to watch AVP um, again now because I only watched it once way back when. And um, I, I think you watched it with me did um, I? when we were packing up your flat down near Liverpool. That sounds about right, actually. Um, that only time I can't at this point say for definite that I disagree with you there. I would have to imagine that I recall AVP being even worse again. But again, I might find myself surprising myself and actually if I watch that again I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised to find myself in agreement with you. I mean we'll talk about it more in the next podcast but Aliens vs Predator or Alien vs Predator is the original one. Um, Alien vs Predator is just a sort of conventionally bad film. I didn't so it's a Paul W.S. Anderson film, it's a conventionally bad film and, and I didn't expect much of it 
Alien Covenant is a it's a downright awful film that seemed to go be worse than the film that preceded it and again continued to miss the points. And I could couldn't bring myself to make many notes after I saw Alien Covenant in the cinema last week. Basically, the only things I wrote were my comment about Ridley Lucas um, that I just mentioned, because that's really what he feels like to me now, um, is George Lucas. The only other note I made, I think will sum up exactly how I feel about Alien Covenant, which was, Michael Fassbender plays midichlorians. (laughs) Because he too represents an explanation that was unneeded, unwarranted, and completely and irrevocably ruins the films that went before. Well played, idiots. <laughs> I think for me, I might have commented on one on my Twitter feed or something at the time. I think alarm bells rang when that little uh, what was the little? It was supposed to be a short which was released bef- ahead of Alien Covenant, but from what I can tell, it's actually just a clip from the film and not its own thing. What was it called again? I am afraid I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, it was just like a three-minute short thing. It was basically them sitting standing in the uh, on the ships. Sitting, standing. Sitting, standing in the ship's <laughs> uh, bridge. And at the time, I think I remember thinking, wait a minute, the planet colonising, species-saving mission, and you picked Danny McBride amongst the best of the best? That's another thing I don't understand, actually. Um, just talking about colonising, um, and Scott mentioned that, in fact, the only reason that Daniels... Is it Daniels? Um, the um, Catherine Waterston's character. Yeah. yeah. The only reason that she could have any real reservations about this planet was if she had read the script. Uh, <laughs> is that there's not really any reason to understand why they couldn't discover this planet before. Mm-hmm. Unless there was some sort of malevolent reason, but that doesn't make any sense here. Like, when you have the original Alien, and clearly the idea is that Wayland yutani knew something about this planet beforehand, because, you know, when Ripley says, um, feed off of micro changes in air density, my ass, you know, um, about how Ash is able to this detector thing clearly there's some idea here that Wayland yutani knows something about some sort of alien or something and that's why the Nostrom was sent to this place and that and actually i don't want that explained that's enough mm-hmm. right but in um, alien covenant that doesn't make any sense that it's anything to do with the company because you've got this this mission the prometheus mission disappeared and it's only just been 10 years since the prometheus mission and given it takes two or three years to get to the place in the first place with their ships and being in hypersleep it's not like they could have set this up so how did they do all these great surveys and not discover this other planet mm. that happens to be there it's, it's, the whole thing is full of plot holes it also I mean from a purely scientific point of view and it's a, a, irrelevant really in the grand discussion but it does fall foul of that thing that lots of sci-fi movies do where if I remember correctly this is set less than 100 years in the future um, yeah, and we're in a um, spaceship talking about making jumps and you know hypersleeps and stuff I was like okay not buying yeah, it jumps weren't mentioned at any point in any of the other alien films and exactly. I picked up on that as well and this is the where, earliest where did this come from it's like alright I can gather that, that by that point they might have an iPhone made completely of glass but I don't think we're going to be performing like crazy subspace hyper warp jumps um, yeah just uh, but that's by yeah, I mean, the by uh, we're, we're, well, the previous alien films basically went obviously they have some sort of fast propulsion faster than we have now mm-hmm. but it still takes an awfully long time to get somewhere so you have to have hypersleep mm-hmm. I don't think it needed any more explanation mm-hmm. than that. I got that it's like yes we're not talking Star Trek but it's faster than what we have now 
that'll do you. Mm. And then the yeah, Alien Covenant starts introducing things like jumps. Like, mm. I know at this point this is going to be a nightmare edit job as well, but this is more of a discussion point that I wanted to ask you guys about actually before we started recording. This, the anomalous burst of those pesky neutrinos at the start of the film that actually causes the issue with the recharging sails. Uh-huh. Was there ever any explanation as to... Because uh, it seemed to be hinted at that that would be something plot-relevant that, whoa, it just sort of popped out of nowhere and, well, this localised event, uh, which bizarre expanding space blamange that seemed to... Because <laughs> um, that's what I neutrinos get, actually, I like. got caught up in that got caught up in that in the cinema because when he said there's a neutrino surge and I'm thinking but neutrinos don't interact with anything (laughs) (laughs) yes the latinos are mutating Craig Um, yeah the neutrinos don't interact with anything it's kind of the defining characteristic of a neutrino well that's what I mean it clearly wasn't neutrinos it was clearly a a rapidly expanding space blamange because um, that's how it was portrayed visually they did get afterwards they said like the neutrino this neutrino surge that was detected was like a precursor to some sort of energy discharge from a star or something right Um, and of all the places that could happen of course it happened yeah though that's it I don't know whether they're suggesting somehow that was malicious like the rest of it or it's just incredible coincidence and if it's a coincidence it's lazy if it's malicious it's Stupid. If a coincidence, if it's way, a coincidence it well. it's mathematically improbable to the point where it might as well essentially be impossible. And yes. I also feel like it was heavily, it was a sort of nudge-nudge thing that I'd pay attention to that, because this will be a plot point later on, and it never was. I didn't miss anything, right? It didn't, wasn't referred to, it wasn't sabotage of some sort. No, I assumed sabotage, because I was assuming at the beginning, well, oh, we've got Michael Fassbender again, Walter's abandoned then. Yeah. But he wasn't. But yeah, the... That happening then and there, and the fact that somehow all the surveys had missed an entire planet, despite mm-hmm. the fact all the surveys were about finding a perfect planet. Oh yeah, we could tell enough detail the, about the planets we found that we could tell it was going to be habitable, and from what I gathered, it even performed like terrain scans and whatnot. But well, yeah. well they could resolve they knew there was that a lake planet that they could build a house next to. Yeah, well, they can resolve a planet at that sort of level. They didn't see the other planet. Um, yes, they missed an entire planet. Yes, somehow, yeah. exactly. I don't know. I don't know whether that was something that was written but never kind of connected up, mm. which is possible. But it's it's either badly written or downright stupid, or they've like oh, da, da, space magic, and they left it at that. Mm. Yes, that that left me unsatisfied. But <laughs> the entire film left me unsatisfied. So why should that one thing be alone? Okay, then, Mister Morris, would you like to tell us what people had to say on Twitter about um, the Aliens franchise? Well, some people have a great deal to say about aliens. Uh, Matt Toller, I'm looking at you. <laughs> I am Toller. In some some kind of order. Um, alien Resurrection was Joss Whedon's dry run for Firefly. No idea why I hired Michael Wincott and kill him off in the first 30 minutes. While I was watching this, I was thinking, yeah, there are, it's definitely it, it's proto-Firefly here. Whereas the humour in Firefly, worked in Firefly, doesn't fit in Alien Resurrection. But it, clearly the idea is there. Yes, uh, he thinks that it has brief flashes of goodness, but inherited memories and the goofy alien hybrid are both completely unacceptable. And that's yes, this um, this is why I said to him that I thought he was reading our <laughs> notes because that's almost exactly yeah. what I was thinking too. That the genetic memories, what utter tosh! An interjection from Tengushi, as that's on uh, the same point at Tengushi on Twitter, uh, was just about to reply. Resurrection is awful, but the space pirates are awesome, so it's a dilemma for the ages. Uh, yes. <laughs> Back to Matt again. He thinks Alien 3 went its own direction and still fits with the series tone. Lots of memorable moments due to a great cast, which, uh, yes. Yeah, someone, Charles Danson. In uh, fact, uh, Alien 3 does have a really good cast, actually. And Brian Glover, famous as he is for T adverts, yeah. as you mentioned in your um, coverage of Alien 3, 
works really well is Andrew's um, Ralph Brown. I'm not so sure, but I prefer him as um, these characters in With Neil and I and Wayne's World 2, actually. But he's okay. But Charles Dance, always fantastic. Charles S. Dutton um, has got kind of power to him, a quiet power, which is really appealing. The Alien 3 really does. The cast doesn't get talked up enough in Alien 3, actually. Um, we obviously, ignore Paul McGann because he's Paul McGann, but. Yes. And at age 12, he encountered aliens on broadcasts. DBS showed a cut with additional scenes, and it was 10 years before we got hands on that cut again. And he make a case for aliens being the greatest action film of all time. Probably not far off it, as you mentioned. Uh, but, but, but Die yes. Hard, Matt. Die Hard. And also uh, a plug for Alien Isolation, the video game, which gets the first movie's tone pretty well spot on, which uh, he's still not got around to playing, but I will give an anti plug to him, Aliens Colonial Marine. That's that's not good. Yes, um, which Aliens clones very much suffers from Ridley Scottism is it entirely yes. misses the point as well as ruining <laughs> the backstory. And, and apparently was canon. Hmm. Let's see. Yes. Hmm, that's scary. And the only good thing about Alien um, Aliens Colonial Marines is the sounds of the pulse rifle and the smart gun because as we mentioned earlier, those sounds are awesome and <laughs> iconic. That's all the Aliens Colonial Marines has going for it. This being an audio uh, medium, I shall largely skip over these awesome little um, Warhammer 4000 conversions that have turned into the Xenomorphs that uh, Tengashi's been doing. They're, they look incredibly impressive. If you check out our Twitter stream, you'll see some of those, but they're quite cool. But I can't adequately describe them with my voice. Uh, moving on, uh, Jennifer and Jeff from the uh, Kid Free Weekend podcast. That's at Kid Free Weekend and also um, Pod of Thrones, I think it is. Um, looking forward to rewatching Prometheus this week and going to see Covenant. Uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> yes, don't, don't look forward to that. Prometheus was simultaneously an awesome backstory and a confusing, illogical mess, but I've been holding out hope that the sequel will explain a ton, ranging from by she only ran in a straight line, <laughs> largely from a, that rolling spacecraft one assumes, uh, all the way to why they recreated the space jockey scene from Alien except for putting her on a totally different goddamn planet. Why? <laughs> yes, I did wonder that too, because I couldn't remember quite how Prometheus finished, and I remember that they had the scene that looked almost exactly like the ship that's discovered in LV-426. Mm. And it's like, oh no, they've just basically done the same thing, but it's clearly not the same ship or the same planet, or they're going to somehow move yes. that ship later because they've stuck an extra two films yeah. in between. So it's like, this film finishes where Alien begins, but also sort of doesn't. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, a mess in a great many ways. As we've discussed. Stephen Nelson, hello again, at Scott's Actor on Twitter. Uh, where does he begin with his obsession with all things Xenomorph? The best sci-fi movie monster of all time, A Parasite with Acid for Blood, and his franchise ranking, Aliens, Special Edition, Alien Director's Cut, Alien 3 Assembly Cut, Alien Covenant, Prometheus, AVP, Alien Resurrection, and then AVP Requiem. Yes, I, I'll go I'll follow along, Aliens, Alien, Alien 3, absolutely. Um, and then, in fact, I find myself putting in Alien Resurrection, then Alien vs. Predator. And then Prometheus and then the Alien Covenant, <laughs> because they're terrible. That's, that that seems harsh from what I remember of Alien vs. Predator, but we'll, I guess we'll discuss that in 10 days with the Redditor films. But uh, yes, those films weren't any good, but they were... Yeah, they just weren't any good. <laughs> yes, but they're, they're more conventionally bad as opposed to spectacular failure yeah. bad. That's my contention, but again, we'll talk about that soon. Um, a bit more talk from him and uh, Matt on relative merits of Predators and AVPs. We'll probably save that for the next podcast. And then, we get, then we've somehow gotten to a rat hole of um, Father Ted references, <laughs> which I approve, <laughs> obviously, um, but I, I'm not entirely sure what the relationship to Aliens was. <laughs> Bishops love sci-fi, Scott. That, that's the key thing. That is true. Aliens was on after the news. Yes, if you would like to get in touch, we would most welcome your feedback. You can do so probably the best place on Twitter at 
Fuds on Film or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Fuds on Film or email us podcast at fudsonfilm.com. So, yeah, I guess that, that does pretty much put a hole in it for aliens and we'll be talking in 10 days about predators. So get your predator hats on for that. I'm not sure what a predator hat is. I assume uh, it's a predator mask and you look like one of those aliens and that's going to be quite horrific. <laughs> cool. Yes. Okay. I approve of Predator Hats. Right, that that's us talking about the Alien franchise. We will move on to Predators next time. But now, that's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. <laughs> bye. Yes, goodbye. <laughs> I'm. I, I was. What was Billy Crudup called again? No, I wasn't expecting answers. That's just I'm signing off as what was Billy Crudup called again. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, Bye!